0: From New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: Dahlia is
0: the strongest storm to hit this part of Florida, to make landfall in this part of Florida in over 100 years.
2: I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore.
0: Hurricane Nadalia has left a trail of flooding and destruction from Florida to the Carolinas. We'll look at the climate emergency with NASA scientist Peter Kalmus who warns that climate disasters will only get worse. Plus, we look at another crisis the rapidly shrinking supply of groundwater in the nation's aquifers.
1: When we overpump aquifers, what we do is we create a space for saltwater intrusion, which dramatically endangers both wildlife as well as the economic stability of our nation.
0: But first, a military coup in the oil-rich Central African nation of Gabon has ended over 50 years of rule by a single family, which had close ties to both France and the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. After barreling through Florida, the downgraded tropical storm Idalia lashed Georgia and South Carolina inundating coastal towns, leaving 300,000 customers without power across all three states as of early this morning. As Idalia moves offshore and up the Atlantic, North Carolina residents are bracing themselves for more heavy downpours and possible tornadoes. Officials warn dangerous storm surges are still possible. Two people died in Florida in car crash linked to extreme weather in Florida's Big Bend region on the Gulf of Mexico, some evacuated residents returned to utterly destroyed homes, including this mother and daughter in Horseshoe Beach.
3: What matters is what I'm holding right here, okay? It's just material it's stuff. I know. It's is so all our retirement,
2: our own life.
3: It's material we're gonna rebuild. Twenty-three years. this gonna be it's gonna be good.
0: It's gonna be fun. President Biden spoke at the White House on the federal response to the storm and other climate disasters.
2: I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around. Historic floods. I mean, historic floods, more intense droughts, extreme heat, significant wildfires have caused significant damage like we've never seen before.
0: In the central African nation of Gabon, the military hunter has announced General Brees Aligui and Gamma will serve as transitional leader following Wednesday's coup that ousted Gabon's president, Ali Bongo, whose family has ruled the oil-rich former French colony for over half a century. Many residents of Gabon celebrated Bongo's ouster, but the African Union and the United Nations have condemned the coup, which came just days after a contested election. The ousted president remains under house arrest and appeared in a video Wednesday pleading for help. We'll have more on Gabon after headlines. In South Africa, at least 73 people died as a massive fire tore through a five-story building in downtown Johannesburg that housed squatters living in crap makeshift conditions. Many of them were believed to be migrants. Officials say at least seven children are among the dead. Harrowing scenes showed scores of lifeless bodies lined up on the streets as rescue teams continue to search for people. Witnesses and survivors described the chaos as people tried to flee the burning building. The actual fire escape was closed, so the uh, people—there was a lot of people, you know, a lot of people were people were suffocated, and a lot of people died because of the smoke, because there was a lot of pressure at the gates. Some of the gates were closed. The building was once an apartheid government checkpoint for black workers. The scarcity of affordable housing in Johannesburg has driven people to take shelter in unsafe, overcrowded, abandoned buildings, which often lack sewage, electricity and other basic amenities. The U.N. says fighting between Ethiopia's military and the regional Fano militia in the Amhara region has killed at least 183 people over the last month. A state of emergency was declared in the region early this month, leading to the arbitrary arrest of more than 1,000 people, many believed to be young people of ethnic Amhara origin. The latest conflict broke out after Ethiopian forces reclaimed major towns and cities in the northern region. Amhara soldiers fought on the side of the Ethiopian military during the two-year conflict in northern Tigray. Migrant deaths around El Paso, Texas, reached a 25-year high this year, with at least 136 deaths. Roughly 100 of those were recorded starting in May as temperatures started to soar. The death toll is at least 87 percent higher than last year. The area in question spans the U.S.-Mexico border from just east of metropolitan El Paso in Texas across New Mexico's southern border. Some deaths were caused by people falling off border fences, but most of them are attributed to extreme heat. Ground temperatures as hot as 150 degrees have been recorded this summer amidst record smashing heat waves. A Texas judge just ruled a new state law barring cities from making a wide range of local decisions unconstitutional. Among other things, it would have prohibited local governments from requiring water breaks for construction workers. Texas's HB 2127, dubbed the Death Star Bill, was set to go into effect Friday. It was part of an effort by Texas's Republican Party and Governor Greg Abbott to control increasingly progressive and Democrat-led cities. The law was challenged by Houston, San Antonio and El Paso. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner celebrated the decision, saying, quote, "...this self-defeating war on cities needs to end," he said. Texas's attorney general has already appealed the ruling. The Biden administration unveiled a new rule that would see some 3.6 million new workers entitled to overtime pay. The Labor Department's proposing raising eligibility to salaried workers who earn up to $55,000 per year, up from around $35,500. Those employees would be guaranteed time-and-half pay after working more than 40 hours a week. The change would benefit workers across a range of industries, including manufacturing, healthcare, and retail. Some trade groups condemned the rule and could seek to challenge it in court. The Congressional Progressive Caucus welcomed the move, but urged increasing the salary threshold to workers making up to— $80,000 a year. President Biden said he would speak to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who Biden called a good friend, after the 81-year-old Republican leader froze for around 30 seconds while speaking to reporters in Kentucky before two aides intervened.
2: I'm
4: sorry, I had a hard time hearing you. That's okay. What are your thoughts on running for re-election in 2026?
2: What are my thoughts about what?
4: Running for re-election in 2026.
2: (laughs) That's a—
1: Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re election in
0: 2026? Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: All right, I'm McConnell sorry, i no, going to need a minute. Continued to just stand there until his aides took him away. It's the second such incident, and in a little over a month, as questions mount, over McConnell's ability to finish out his term. The senator froze in late July while speaking to reporters in the U.S. Capitol and also had to be escorted away. McConnell suffered a concussion from a fall in March and has had several more falls since then. New York Attorney General Letitia James says Donald Trump inflated his net worth by as much as $2.2 billion in a year in order to secure loans and business deals. James said in a motion to a judge that there was already sufficient evidence Trump and his associates committed financial fraud and a trial was not necessary. Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers argued the case should be thrown out altogether because the loans in question are too far in the past to be considered by the court. If the judge, does not side with either party. Trump's New York trial will go ahead as planned in October. A federal judge found Rudy Giuliani liable in a defamation lawsuit brought by two Georgia election workers after the disgraced Trump lawyer failed to turn over information sought in subpoenas. Giuliani accused Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss, of committing fraud as they tallied ballots in Atlanta during the 2020 election. It was part of the Trump team's effort to overturn the former president's loss in Georgia. Wednesday's ruling means the defamation case against Giuliani can proceed to a trial which will determine damages. They are seeking millions of dollars. And in Brazil, indigenous groups from around the country rallied in Brasilia on Wednesday as the country's Supreme Court resumed hearings yesterday in a pivotal case that could strip indigenous rights to their ancestral lands. The case is being pushed by agribusiness-backed lawmakers who argue native groups are only entitled to land that they physically occupied when the 1988 Constitution was signed. Many indigenous communities were expelled from their ancestral land over the years, including during the military dictatorship. This is Joenia Wapashena, a member— of the Wapishana tribe and president of the National Commission of the Defense of Rights of Indigenous Peoples.
1: There is a constitution, and it must be respected. So in that vein, we hope that the Supreme Court does justice with the lives of indigenous peoples and protects indigenous lands for indigenous people and all living beings.
0: If enacted, the measure could have dire consequences, not just for the indigenous people of Brazil, but for the preservation of the Amazon and the entire planet. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the war and peace report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Narmeen Sheik. Welcome to our listeners
3: and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in the Central African country of Gabon, where military leaders seized power on Wednesday from President Ali Bongo, whose family had ruled the oil-rich former French colony for more than 50 years. The coup occurred shortly after Bongo had been named the winner of Saturday's contested election. The military junta has announced General Brice Oligui Nguema would serve as transitional leader.
5: Faisant suite à la réunion de ce jour.
6: All of the commanders-in-chief and chiefs of staff, as well as the generals in the second section of the Gabonese Republic, were present for the meeting. General Bryce Uligi Ngema was unanimously appointed chairman of the Committee for the Transition and Restoration of Institutions, president of the transition.
0: President Ali Bongo remains under house arrest. He pleaded for help in a video that aired Wednesday.
5: I'm Ali Bongo on president of Gabon. And I'm to send a message to all the friends that we have all over the world, to tell them to make noise, to make noise. For the people here have arrested me, and
2: my family, my son is somewhere, my wife is he, in another place, and I'm at the residence. Right now, I'm at the residence, and nothing
5: happening. Nothing is happening. I don't know what, what's going on. So I'm calling you to make noise, to make noise, to make noise, really.
3: Ali Bongo and his family have long been accused of enriching themselves at the expense of the country. The ousted president's father, Omar Bongo, ruled Gabon from 1967 to his death in 2009 when Ali Bongo was elected to his first term. In 2007, a probe by French police revealed the Bongo family had 39 properties in France and 70 bank accounts. Both Omar and Ali Bongo were close allies to France and the United States. Ali Bongo met with President Biden at the White House last year. The coup in Gabon comes just weeks after a military coup in Niger, another former French colony. In recent years, there have also been coups in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso and Chad. On Wednesday, the United Nations and the African Union condemned the coup.
0: We're joined now by two guests. Joining us from France is Thomas Delthombe. He's a French journalist and essayist. He edited a book titled A History of Francafrique The Empire That Does Not Want to Die. That's the title translated from French. And New York, Daniel Mangara joins us, professor of French and Francophone studies in the Department of World Languages and Cultures at Montclair State University. He's the author of Gabon in Danger. The the title translated from the French. In 1998, Mangara created the exiled opposition movement Bongo Must Leave, which he continues to lead. We welcome you both to Democracy Now. Danielle Mangara, we thank you so much for being with us. Um, we're we're going to begin with you. Can you explain um, what has just taken place in your country?
5: Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, now. I think that I heard in your segments that uh, the international community was condemning what was going on in Gabon, especially the UN and the African Union. I'm actually surprised because I believe these are the types of coups that actually must be supported because they're undoing what I might call the rape of a nation. Gabon has been ruled for 56 years. By the same family and the same regime. I don't know if people can imagine the scope of what we're talking about here. Omar Bongo came to power in 1967. He ruled for 42 years. And when he died in 2009, his son took over and has now ruled for 14 years. What that means is that Gabon is today one of only two republics, and I mean non-monarchical republics, to have been ruled for 56 years by the same family and the same regime. And for Americans who are listening here today, 56 years is equal to nine American presidents under Omar Bongo from 1963, Lyndon Johnson, to Barack Obama. And so... The Bongo family has ruled without regard for democracy. All the elections in Gabon have been stolen. And I think that uh, the coup is actually a restitutive coup in a sense that it's actually restituting to the Gabonese nation a voice, a voice that will allow them now, perhaps through dialogue, to rebuild after 56 years of what I might call a disaster. And so, uh, I tend to believe that we should support the coup leaders in Gabon. This is a type of coup that we should support because it is the result of, um, it's, it is, in fact, a reaction to the fact that once more Ali Bongo, the Bongo family, tried to steal an election. And for once in Gabonese history, well, the military stepped in and... Uh, have now allowed for the possibility of democratic change in Gabon if we're able to negotiate a peaceful resolution to the crisis.
3: Well, Daniel Mangera, you've said that uh, the coup should be supported by the international community, and we've seen uh, some footage of people in uh, Libreville, the, the capital, celebrating the coup. But if you could explain, uh, you know... Who is behind the coup? What kind of relationship did the Gabonese military have with Bongo? And the fact that there was already an attempted coup in 2019, what happened then?
5: Well, we know that there's been general discontent uh, in Gabon, you know, by the Bongo family. Now, uh, Commander uh, Boris uh, Oligi Ngema, who took over, Uh, as interim president now, uh, certainly is part of what we call the presidential guard. Uh, Traditionally, this is the guard that has been protective of the president. That's like, uh, in Gabon, at least uh, historically, that's been more like a a personal guard to protect a dictator. So the regular army, in Gabon, has no power, no uh, armament that would actually allow it to... uh, um, serve, you know, uh, as a Republican army. And in this sense, the the, the, the the guard of Bongo has been usually perceived as complicit, you know, protective of the regime. And so even, uh, you know, uh, Commander Oligi himself, you know, has been accused by the government's people of having been behind some of the repressions, you know, that uh, have gone on, you know, over the, the, the Bongo regime. But uh, today, we do believe that Despite all that, their ability to now question the Bongo regime themselves and to decide to take over uh, opens up new possibilities for Gabon. Um, uh, Now, the reaction of the people has been that, you know, in general positive, because uh, they're very happy that for once the Bongo family has been at least, at least disabled the point of opening up the possibility of, uh, uh, perhaps later on, democracy for Gabon. And I would say that, you know, if we have to uh, lead to a a simple conclusion, we do have to believe that this is a rare opportunity for the Gabonese people to uh, engage in national dialogue that would allow for, perhaps, uh, in two years, you know, after the transition, to go into uh, democratic rule. And that's why I think that the international community must look at this as an uh, an opportunity for Gabon to actually enter a new era of democratic change.
3: I'd like to bring in uh, Thomas Del Tom uh, uh, into the conversation. Uh, Your book, uh, the book you edited, uh, is titled A History of France-Afrique, The Empire That Does Not Want to Die. So, Thomas, if you could respond to what Daniel Manguera has said, in particular, uh, about the military in Gabon and the relationship of its military to France. France has reportedly a series of agreements with the militaries of many of its former colonies. It's been 60 years, over 60 years, since most of uh, uh, Africa's uh, fr- France's African colonies have gained independence, most of which were in 1960, including uh, Gabon. But since then, France has intervened militarily more than 50 times. Uh, on the continent so if you could begin first by just talking about the the relationship between uh, the, the military and uh, uh, France the, the Gabonese military in France
6: yes thank you very much to having me uh, on your show uh, I think it's very important to go back uh, and to know history to understand what's happening right now in Gabon in particular but in uh, in uh, french speaking Africa in general Uh I think it's important to know the history of what we call this France-Afrique uh, th- th- in one word. Uh, th- this this term, uh, one word, uh, sums up the extremely close relationship, the fusional relationship that uh, France managed to uh, maintain with its uh, former colony in Africa, uh, uh, despite or, or thanks to uh, the fake independence uh, it granted to its uh, former colonies in uh, 1960. Uh, and, and Gabon is the, the the extreme example of this uh, these fake independence. You might maybe you, you you know that the first head of state of uh, Gabon was not Omar Bongo but Léon leomba Léon was a guy uh, which was uh, who was nominated by the French and who refused independence. He didn't want to to have his uh, his uh, country independent. It's the French who forced him to accept independence, and they said to him explicitly, "Don't worry, it's not a true independence. We'll give you independence, but at the same time, you you can you will have to sign uh, what we call cooperation agreements." So, in fact, we give you independence freedom with the left hand, but we're taking it back with the right hand with these cooperations uh, the cooperation agreements and these cooperation agreements are at the heart of what we see today it's big, these cooperation agreements uh allowed France to maintain its military apparatus uh, in the in their Former colonies to uh, maintain the monetary colonial monetary system beyond the independence and to intervene militarily wherever it pleased. And you know there was there had been a a first coup in Gabon in 1964, and the French intervened intervened militarily to uh, put Leombat, this Guy Leombat, back on his. on his president, presidential chair, uh, and, and then immediately they immediately began to prepare the the accession to power uh, of uh, his vice president Albert Bongo uh, at, at at this time, uh, the future Omar Bongo, who uh, was installed in 1967, and the the, the presidential guard itself uh, was uh, was a. Uh, uh, trains and formed by the French militaries uh, back in the 1960s. So it's like it's, uh, uh, the, the independence of Gabon has never been uh, real. And we have to bear that in mind. Otherwise, we can't understand what's happening uh, right now.
0: And just to elaborate further on that term that's in your title, France Afrique, that is a term, it also—freak means sort of money. And so it's like France's piggy bank that that's what Africa is. Is that is that fair to say, in addition to being one word, you know, France is Africa, uh, said here now with irony?
6: Yeah, uh, uh, this France-Afrique was uh, 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 permitted uh, uh, had to to, to to the goal to uh, secure access uh, to uh, uh, strategic raw materials, uh, oil, of course, gas, uranium, manganese, gold, etc., etc. So France could could uh, uh, maintain its grip on 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 its former colonies and and Gabon in particular, and and. Because the, the the Gabonese elite became very very rich thanks to that France African system, it could send back money uh, to uh, the ex metropole France and to secretly finance. Uh, the, the the political scene, uh, people from the left and people from the right, and and try to influence the the political life in France. and and uh, Omar Bongo was like very very uh, good at this uh, at this game. and uh, one one day on the French radio he said, you know, uh, France can't uh, uh, do anything. Can't do harm to me because I have very I know so many secrets, and and among these secrets, what was the question of the financing of the the, the French political scene.
3: Daniel Manguera, if you could uh, uh, talk about, uh, respond to what what Thomas said, in particular, the economic conditions in Gabon, uh, the fact that the country is extremely rich in natural resources uh, and is one of Africa's richest countries on a per capita basis, but most of the population is extremely poor. So if you could talk about this fact, the the Bongo family enriching itself, uh, along with other members of the elite and the concept of bien mal acquis, uh, what exactly does that mean, and how does it apply in this case?
5: Yes, um, so we, what we're talking really about here is the pillaging of the Gabonese economy by the Bongo family. There was uh, a decade ago a documentary that was published by F- uh, France 2, which is a French uh, national, t- uh, one of the French uh, TV stations. Uh, that published a report that under Elf Gabon, which was this uh, French uh, company exploiting Gabonese uh, oil, the Bongo family reserved itself 18%, 18% of Gabonese income. Compare that to what uh, they allocated to the Gabonese uh, nation itself, which was just 25%. So the Bongo family took 18%, and giving to Gabon only 25% of Gabonese oil income under ELF. And so that gives you, uh, you know, the magnitude of what we're talking about. Uh, I do want to go back a little bit, and I'll come back to the economic uh, elements in a moment, but I want to go back to uh, the idea of the France Afrique because when we, uh, to understand actually why the Gabonese are very unhappy with the, the way the Bongos manage the economy, uh, we have to go back to that Fran- France Afrique notion and understand that. Uh, General de Gaulle, you know, with uh, Jacques Foucault, had actually arranged for Omar Bongo to come to power in 1967 because Leomba was sick in France at the time, where he actually died. But before he died, they organized an election in the Gabon after modifying the Gabonese constitution to make it look like the American style of constitution, where you have a vice president who would automatically succeed the president upon the president's death. And that's what happened. So Bongo came to power uh, based on an arrangement that France actually put together to ensure that as soon as President Mba died, Omar Bongo would succeed him. And so that uh, uh, relationship had been ongoing forever to the point when the Gabonese, when they look at their country, and it is indeed today, you know, uh, one of the two highest per capita incomes in Africa, you know, Equatorial Guinea and Gabon, actually have the highest uh, per capita income on, in continental Africa today. And so the Bongo family have basically, through corrupt, uh, corrupt means, um, uh, ransacked the Gabonese economy to the point that the Gabonese are not seeing really where that money is going. Recently, in fact, during the, the, the coup, uh, the coup leaders actually arrested some of the, you know, the, the members of the Bongo government. And in fact, we were surprised to find that in their own houses, they were keeping amounts such as uh, like $7 million, uh, the equivalent of $7 million in their houses. You know, that gives you the magnitude of the corruption in Gabon, the, 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 the way the Bongo family have basically been acquiring properties around the world, uh, expensive cars, but not much of that has been trickling down into the Gabonese people's pockets. And I think that one of the, the grievances of the Gabonese lies right there in the relationship between France and the bongo family. And
0: so, Professor Mangara, your movement is called Bungos Must Leave. Would you add to that France must leave? And do you think General Brice Olighi and Gema will represent something different? How do you think a transition away from the bongos can take place?
5: Well, that's still a, a, a difficult question to answer right now, in the sense that you will find that some of the Gabonese today or kind of suspicious because some of them actually think that it may be a plot by France and the Bongo regime to arrange for a fake coup that will just allow for continuity even when the Bongo or the Bongos are no longer there, and so that suspicion is there. Um, now, how is that possible that we could see something evolving in a way that would make the people trust the coup leaders, and at the same time? Um, Imagine a reconsideration of the relationship between France and Gabon. That's still an unknown, uh, a question that cannot yet be answered. But I can say this: we're seeing all over Africa today discontent, especially in the French-speaking countries that were colonized by France. General discontent, where people have been linking the poverty levels in their nations, the uh, the dictatorships that have, that have been suppressing their freedoms, they've been linking that to French control. And you, now you see when there are demonstrations all over Africa, you know, at least Francophone Africa, you know, the people demonstrating with Russian flags and so on. That's a sign that people are thinking that France is behind whatever is not going well in their nations. And so I think that that's still um, something that the Gabonese are going to, going to have to grapple with. In uh, trying to find out if the coup leaders, or indeed genuine and will try to work with the 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 Gabonese people to uh, allow for true democracy to uh, you know settle in the country in a way that also shows them that they are totally independent from French influence.
3: So, uh, Daniel uh, uh, Manguera, before—sorry, uh, before we forget—sorry, I'm going to go to uh, Thomas uh, del Tom. Uh, Thomas, before we end, if you could also place this uh, coup in the context of the ones that immediately uh, preceded it, uh, and in, in Niger in particular, and whether you feel that, uh, you know, things will change now in, uh, in uh, Gabon with respect to its relationship to uh, France—
6: well, I think there is a difference between the coup in Gabon and and the coup in in the Sahel. Uh because the 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 the, the coup leaders in Gabon doesn't say do, do not seem to want to exploit the the so-called anti-French sentiments. Uh they they are not they were insiders in the Bongo system. Apparently the gener- general Oligin Gamah uh, uh, quite uh, uh, worked with both Omar Bongo and Ali Bongo, and, and benefited fi- financially from uh, his position. Uh, one hypothesis is that he they knew that the the election that place, uh, took place took uh, place last Saturday, uh, where, uh, made them put them in a great danger. And they ha- they wanted to intervene before uh, the people before a, a popular revolt to, to to be able to save what could be saved i don 't know what Daniel thinks about this hypothesis, but I think it is possible that they want to uh, to keep the part of the system to continue to enjoy it. On uh, the part of the, the French and particularly the French commentators, uh, they, they tend to play dumb because they, they ask questions. If you if you watch French television, uh, they ask questions like, how come Africans uh, love men in uniform so much, like in Niger and in Gabo? How much they 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 wa- uh, How come they wave uh, uh, Russian flags? Do they like uh, Vladimir Putin so much? I think this. Uh, but telling state of mind is is quite ill-advised, uh, actually, in the on the part of the French, because their government uh, and and their own indifference for so many years is, uh, uh, is bears a, a heavy responsibility in what we see now. I think we might be uh, witnessing a second independence, a, a new decolonization process, and and all this. Uh, 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 pro Russian uh, feeling in Africa might be more pragmatic w- than what uh, the, the French commentators say and and the fact that they i think many Africans see uh, the military and the Russians as tools like pragmatic tools uh, to get rid of uh, uh, long like autocrats and the French tutelage, and this is not incompatible with the desire to establish at last a real independence and a real democracy.
0: Uh, I'm going to have Danielle Mangara respond, and also in the last 60 seconds that we have, the where Total, the French oil company, fits into this picture.
5: Well, the, the thing is that, you know, what is interesting is that we've actually seen some type of disengagement of, uh, you know, at least French uh, oil companies from Gabon. Uh, today, it's mostly Perenco, which is owned by a French family rather than the French government. Um, and so that's uh, the because we actually have a penetration of the Chinese interest in Gabon nowadays also, and that makes it uh, less uh, uh, of a problem in terms of where... the the, the relationships, at least the economic relationships are going, because France is actually now not the main economic partner of Gabon. And that's been a good thing. Uh, And I kind of want to echo the the, the idea that, you know, uh, we are now at the you might say, crossroads. Yeah. uh, That is uh, going to open the possibility that if the coup leaders or genuine about their intent, they're going to have to open up dialogue with the Gabonese civil society and the political class. In a way, that would allow for the pressures of the Gabonese population. Because, and I think that's the key. When we're talking about French, uh, about French influence, it's really about how the people react to the, the coup leaders and how they can pressure the coup leaders into doing the will of the people as opposed to the will of France. And I think that, you know, the, world, uh, the, the idea of a new independence for Gabon is true in the sense that the potential is there, and I believe we could see uh, something positive coming out of this. I believe that despite the fact that the, the coup leaders are part of the presidential guard, uh, mostly, um, uh, the Gabonese will be uh, mature enough to pressurize them, to pressure them in a way that will allow for a national dialogue to occur that could actually open up uh, the possibility of democratic change in Gabon uh, in in the near future.
0: We want to thank you both for being with us. We're going to continue to cover this story, of course. Professor Danielle Mangara teaches French and Francophone studies at Montclair State University in New Jersey, author of Gambon in Danger, the title translated from the French. In 1998, Mangara created the exiled opposition movement Bongo Must Leave, which he continues to head. And joining us from Lille, France, thank you so much to Thomas Delton, French journalist and essayist, his edited book called A History of France-Afrique, The Empire That Does Not Want to Die. Coming up, uh, Hurricane Nadalia has left a trail of flooding and destruction from Florida to the Carolinas. We'll look at the climate emergency with climate scientist Peter Kalmus, the NASA scientist who's been arrested, demanding more action on climate change. Stay with us.
5: La journée est longue, mais moi je ris. La journée est pénible, mais moi je chante. La fin du mois est stérile, je bosse. La fin du mois est stérile, je chante. Mes poches sont vides, je chante, mes journées sont et
2: je chante, je chante, mes doigts sont ensemble, je bosse,
5: je n'ai point de repos, je n'ai point de sommeil, mes nuits, des cauchemars, les pleurs des enfants qui ont faim et qui veulent chaque jour un peu plus, un peu plus.
6: The bon matin, je cherche ma hache. Ma hache mord le bois. Ma hache défie le bois. Ma hache déteste le bois. Et moi, moi, je déteste le.
0: Pierre Akendenge. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org. The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. Hurricane
3: Idalia has left a trail of flooding and destruction from Florida to the Carolinas, inundating coastal towns and leaving over 300,000 customers across the region without power. Idalia made landfall as a Category 3 hurricane and was later downgraded to a tropical storm. It was the strongest hurricane to hit the Big Bend section of Florida in over 125 years. The storm produced record storm surge across much of the region. As Adalia continues northward, North Carolina residents are bracing themselves for heavy downpours and possible tornadoes. Officials warned residents dangerous storm surges are still possible. Two people died in Florida in car crashes linked to the storm. On Wednesday, President Biden spoke at the White House.
2: I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around. Historic floods, I mean historic floods, more intense droughts, extreme heat, significant wildfires have caused significant damage like we've never seen before.
0: We go now to Raleigh, North Carolina, where we're joined by Peter Kalmus, climate activist, climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, joining us today, speaking uh, on his own behalf, not as a spokesperson for NASA. Last year, he was arrested for locking himself onto an entrance to the J.P. Morgan Chase Building in Los Angeles. Um, and you can explain why, Peter Kalmus, you locked yourself to the J.P. Morgan Chase Building, how that relates to your climate science work, and what the— south and the east of the country is experiencing right now, even Raleigh getting the tail end as the storm moves north.
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, So the public just doesn't understand, in my opinion, what a deep emergency we are in. This is the merest beginning of what we're going to see in coming years. And to me, it's absolutely horrifying. I don't think people really fully appreciate how irreversible these impacts are. We, uh, we can't just reverse this. It's not like cleaning up trash in a park. Um, how hot we allow this planet to get is how hot it will stay for a very long time. And I feel like climate scientists, including myself, have been being ignored for decades by world leaders. They just don't seem to get this either. I'm glad to hear uh, President Biden finally using his bully pulpit a little bit to try to wake people up that this is real. But he continues to expand fossil fuels at breakneck pace. He continues to uh, permit more drilling on public lands at a pace even faster than Trump to approve the Willow Project in Alaska. He went out of his way to make sure that the Mountain Valley Pipeline and natural gas pipeline in uh, Virginia and West Virginia was approved. Uh, He could have stopped that. But instead, he's pushing to expand fossil fuels, and that's the cause of all of this damage. we're seeing, the deadly fires in Greece, in uh, Maui a few weeks ago, uh, the flooding that we've seen in Vermont this year and Pakistan last summer that basically inundated uh, most of the country. Um, the record heat that we're seeing is going to get worse and worse. Um, I, I feel like we are uh, on the verge. Uh, these are very nonlinear changes, so it's, it's, uh, it feels like they're increasing very quickly because they interact with society in very complex ways, and we're a lot more vulnerable than I think uh, that most people. Uh, think or thought quite recently. And so we could start seeing things like uh, he- regional heat waves that end up killing uh, a million people over the course of a few days uh, in coming years. And it won't stop there. That's the thing. It just gets worse the more fossil fuels we burn. And so, yeah, I, the science, just doing the science, publishing the papers hasn't seemed to got the message across either to the public or to world leaders. Um, I've got two sons, and it breaks my heart to see the Biden administration continue to expand fossil fuels and take us deeper into this catastrophe instead of trying to bring us back from this on—he's he's deeply on the, right, the wrong side of history. Um, Choosing choosing Morgan Chase Bank in Los Angeles last year, uh, that was a strategic choice because a lot of these new fossil fuel projects—and and just let me say again how insane it is that uh, we're still building new—we're fo- still allowing new fossil fuel projects to be built because they have lifetimes of three to four decades. Anyway, uh, the financing of those new projects is crucial, and no one—no institution on the planet does more— damage to the earth system, irreversible damage by financing fossil fuel projects than J.P. Morgan.
3: So, Peter Kalmus, could you talk about that, elaborate on the role of the fossil fuel industry, not just in, of course, contributing uh, uh, over 80 percent, being responsible for over 80 percent of global heating, but what role, if any, it plays in the Biden administrations, uh, despite what he said, that there's no question now of denying the impact of the climate crisis. He's falling short, uh, even though he says he said earlier this year that he's practically declared a climate emergency. He has not done so. So what would declaring a climate emergency enable? And what role is the fossil fuel industry playing, if any, in preventing him from doing so?
4: yeah so a lot of questions there. Um, let me start out by saying that the public needs to know that the fossil fuel industry and its leaders, the fossil fuel executives, have and their lobbyists have been lying for decades for about fifty years. They came this this is very well documented. There's a paper trail. Um, people like uh, science historians like Naomi Oreskes, Ben Franta, um, uh, journalists like Amy Westervelt. they they've very. There's a very clear and and sizable. Uh, body of evidence that the fossil fuel industry th- and through organizations like the American Petroleum Institute have been literally lying to the public, trying to spread confusion about the science, um, countering s- climate scientists' attempt to sound the alarm, um, kind of creating this 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 sense of uncertainty through their lies of you know spending billions of dollars on these misinformation campaigns, and then bribing politicians. So um, you know, I think it was a year ago, a story in the New York Times said that you know, we all know that Joe Manchin gets a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry. But even Senator Chuck Schumer um, uh, received uh, almost $300,000 in one election cycle from the, co- the corporation that benefits from the Mountain Valley Pipeline to ensure that the Mountain Valley Pipeline was built. So. Um, the tendrils of the fossil fuel industry. And it's surprising how cheap it is for them to buy off these politicians. It um, reminds me of the David Bowie song, The Man Who Sold the World. Um, I know that President Biden, when he was during the primaries, a, a lot of the Um, People in his campaign team had worked previously in the fossil fuel industry. So there's a lot of connections there as well. Um, So I think that, you know, part of the problem is simply we have one of the most powerful industries on the planet, if not the most powerful industry, uh, which has extremely deep pockets. Um, They have profits of over uh, I think a trillion dollars per year, um, and they can spend a tiny bit of that money to basically influence politicians. It's it's essentially legalized bribery. Um, so I. You know, I think there's also uh, that their disinformation campaign has caught is a big part of why the public doesn't understand uh, how serious of an emergency we're in right now. And that in turn um, kind of doesn't push journalists to kind of connect these dots. So I see a lot of stories being reported in The New York Times and elsewhere about these individual climate catastrophes, but they they miss. Very key points in the story, right? They First of all, they often use the passive voice. They say, like, the Earth is heating up. No, it's being... Heated up by the fossil fuel industry, by their dishonesty, by their legalized bribery. Um, So they don't make that connection. They also don't make the connection of where we're going in the near future, right? So if they're talking about a deadly heat wave that happens in 2023, um, they don't say how much worse things are going to get by, say, 2028 or 2032. Um, This is what really frightens me about uh, climate. Change and caused by global heating, it's it's a trend. You, You you might have some years that are slightly cooler than others due to natural variability. So it's a it's a little bit of a noisy trend, but it's rising year on year. The physics is absolutely. Um, you can't negotiate it with it. It's, it's, we understand the physics quite well. We don't understand how it's all going to play out with these co- complex human systems like the agriculture system, uh, water systems, geopolitics. That's a whole other question. Just, but we know it's going to get hotter and hotter, and that's going to drive all of these types of catastrophes that we're seeing to get more intense, and more frequent.
0: Peter Kalmas, I wanted to go back to last week's Republican mm-hmm. presidential debate. Some are calling it a vice presidential debate. Uh, those who are competing to be the vice presidential running mate of President Trump. Uh, But Fox News played a question from Alexander Diaz, a student at Catholic University of America.
6: Polls consistently show that young people's number one issue is climate change. How will you, as both president of the United States and leader of the Republican Party, calm their fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change?
0: So we want to start on this with a show of hands. Do you believe in— Human behavior is causing climate change.
4: Raise your hand if you do. Well, look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. I mean, I'm happy to take it to start. Alexander, <laughs> okay. so do you want to raise your hand?
0: That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He and the other seven candidates refused to say climate change is caused by humans. Vivek Ramaswamy went on to call climate change a hoax. Peter Kalmas.
4: It's absolutely disgusting to me. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, he made a reference to school children. School children understand this science much better than these uh, adult men who are running for a high office. And as a parent, as a citizen, and as a scientist, I find it appalling and disgusting. I mean, I can't, I can't mince words anymore anymore. Um, uh, you know, I think too many scientists are holding back in how they talk about this. But the science is there's a mountain of evidence. The science could not be any more clear. There is no debate. That's that's it's just ridiculous. And um, I don't I don't know what else to say. It's like, how would I be able to argue with somebody who insisted that two plus two equals five?
3: So, Peter, before we uh, uh, end, we just have a minute. What alternatives to fossil fuel are being explored now?
4: well so let 's be really clear, right? so, as you said earlier, about roughly eighty percent of global heating is caused by burning fossil fuels. Uh, most of the rest of it is as caused, caused by industrial um, animal agriculture so but we know nothing we do will stop this besides if if solution packages don 't include ramping down fossil fuels very quickly they 're complete. Um, Basically, garbage, right? So, look at the COP28 process, too. I want to make this point, which uh, COP28 has th- the last few COPs, the fossil fuel industry has been, has sent the largest group of delegates to this is the United Nations uh, global negotiations. 20 seconds. Doing, yeah. Um, and, and now it's, it's being led by. <laughs> the UAE um, National Fossil Fuel Executive. So the, the Fox is controlling the House. We have to ramp down fossil fuels. There's no other choice. And renewable energies are already cheaper. So it's just this money in politics, which is blocking everything and the, the ignorance of some of these politicians.
0: Peter Kalmus, climate activist, climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, not speaking um, on behalf of NASA, but speaking on his own behalf. And some might say on behalf of the planet coming up. We'll look at another crisis, the rapidly shrinking supply of groundwater in the nation's aquifers. Back in 20 seconds.
3: But you take and you take Like silks up my sleeve Tired corner to corner Never
1: ending Trick after trick I make the magic And you unrelentingly Ask
0: for the secret. Salt in the Wound by Boy Genius. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Mimi Goodman with Nermin Sheikh.
3: America is using up its groundwater like there's no tomorrow. That's the headline to a major New York Times investigation that examines how the nation's aquifers are becoming severely depleted due to overuse, in part from huge industrial farms and sprawling cities. The depletion of the nation's aquifers is already having a devastating impact. The Times reports that in Kansas, corn yields are plummeting due to a lack of water. In Arizona, there's not enough water to support the construction of new homes in parts of Phoenix, and rivers across the country are drying up.
0: We're going now to Oklahoma, where we're joined by Warigia Bowman, who has been closely tracking this issue, Director of Sustainable Energy and Natural Resources Law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. Thank you so much for being with us. Can you start off by just explaining what an aquifer is, why these groundwater resources are under such threat, why they're so critical, uh, not only to the United States, but all over the world?
1: Well, thank you so much, um, Amy. It's really an honor to be on your show. I've been listening for years, so I am grateful for the opportunity for your listeners, an aquifer refers to essentially a container of soil and rock that holds water under the ground. This is not an underground river. Rather, it's water flowing through porous rock and soil. So if you have an aquifer very close to the surface, we usually call that artesian, and that's when you see a spring. So if you see a spring bubbling out of ground, that means that the aquifers is very close to the surface. Some aquifers are very deep below the surface and they were formed by glacial rainwater billions and millions of years ago. So an aquifer is just a fancy way of saying, you know, the place that holds our groundwater. Now, aquifers are critical for both the United States and the world because we get so much of our drinking water from groundwater, it's really a significant percentage. In California, it can go as high as 60% in a drought year. And so,
3: but, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but if you if you could talk about how the federal government and state governments manage public water supplies.
1: Okay, well, the federal government does not deal with groundwater. They have the power to, the Supreme Court has said, in Nebraska versus Sporhaas that the federal government has that opportunity. But all water law is done at the state level for the moment. And what that means is that each different state has a different approach to managing its water. So actually, who manages water at the local level, that's a municipal issue. That's a little bit more of an infrastructure issue. But in terms of who owns the water and the legal regime to utilize it, that's a state law issue. And can you
0: talk about how aquifer depletion isn't solely a problem in the west of the country, how the tap water crisis is uh, emerging in other parts of the country as well?
2: Okay,
1: well— I'm not an expert on the tap water crisis, but I will say that all coastal regions in the United States are really being threatened by groundwater and aquifer problems. Uh, Some of the hardest hit are going to be Louisiana and Florida. Obviously, New York will eventually be hit. Let's take Florida. I'm sure you guys have already heard about how residents in Miami are trying to move their properties or find property on hillier areas but in places like the Everglade, you have a very delicate balance of fresh water and salt water but when we overdraw our aquifers then you get something called saltwater intrusion which upsets that balance and that's also a serious problem in Louisiana and surprisingly under the Mississippi River between Mississippi and Arkansas There's enormous aquifer depletion. It's hard to believe because the Mississippi is such a big river. But the farmers in that region are withdrawing so much water so fast that actually the aquifers underneath the Mississippi River are are one of the most endangered aquifers in the United States. So if you could talk about
3: very quickly in the last minute we have how the climate crisis uh, uh, worsens this aquifer depletion and accelerates it.
1: Well, there are a few different ways. The first way is precipitation is declining. Snow melt is declining. I mean, snow is declining. But one thing to understand is that aquifers and groundwater, they recharge incredibly slowly. So it can take millions of years to fill an aquifer, but they can be depleted you know, in 50 years. But as surface water supplies like rivers and streams and lakes are depleted, Farmers and industry are going to draw more from groundwater, and so that accelerates the depletion.
0: Well, Warigia Bullman, we want to thank you so much for being with us, associate professor and director of Sustainable Energy and Natural Resources Law at the University of Tulsa College of Law. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Hani Masood. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke. Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermin Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Waranoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hani Masoud, Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prue, Dennis McCormick, Matt Ely, and Emily Anderson. If you want to sign up for our daily digest, news in your email box, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nareen Sheikh. Thanks so much for joining us.